I'm Amelia Gonzalez. Today, we honor Tilly Olson, who is a highly praised author of Tell Me a Riddle, Silences, and Yonandio from the 30s. Tilly Olson recently took her last breath earlier this month on January 1st here in Oakland, California. She would have celebrated her 95th birthday on January 14th. We have been able to find a treasure in our archives where she's reading from her book, Yanandio from the 30s, which carries its own interesting history. Tilly Olson wrote the majority of the novel when she was 19 years old. Indeed, she estimates that she began the novel in March 1932, the same month she became pregnant with her first child. She considered it unfinished, and what we know today as Yanandio is actually a recovered text. In 1972, Tilly's husband, Jack, discovered chapters, notes, and scraps among her old papers. Tilly spent the next two years piecing the novel together. In 1974, it was finally published in the form we have now. Tilly Olson insisted that she would not write new portions, even for the benefit of clarity and closure. The result is a collaboration between a young Tilly Olson and an older Tilly Olson, a collaboration that formed an open-ended text. Yanandio, a song, a poem of itself, the word itself a dirge, lament for the aborigines, race of the woods, the landscapes free and the falls. No picture, poem, statement passing them to the future. Yanandio, Yanandio, unlimbed they disappear. Today gives place and fades. The cities, farms, factories fade. A muffled, sonorous sound. A wailing word is born through the air for a moment. Then blank and gone and still and utterly lost. Yanandio from the 30s after a poem of Walt Whitman's Yanandio, an Iroquois term meaning Walt Whitman tells us lament for the Aborigines, a song, a poem of itself, the word itself a dirge, and the two key lines are no picture, poem, statement passing them to the future, Yanandio, Yanandio, unlimbed, U-N-L-I-M-N-D. They disappear, as most human lives have vanished from the earth as if they never were. A migrant family set in the 20s, written in the 30s, when I myself was 19 years old into the time when I was 23 or 24. Young parents, five children, moving from mining town to the farm, starved from there and moving back to the packing house where this begins. Anna had wrapped a rag around the broom and swept down the walls and swept the floors and scrubbed the toilet bowl and put the diapers to soak and was filling a tub with water preparatory to scrubbing the floor when Miss Crixie came in with Maisie and Jimmy. You been cleaning, Anna? Miss Crixie asked incredulous. You go to bed. 
Then, seeing the stubborn face flaring white behind its fury, in harder tones, What the matter? You want to stay sick? Cleaning gonna wait for you. It not going no place. You go lay down. I been laying down. As for you, Missy, seeing Maisie, where have you been? Get in here. There's work for you to do. Anna May's waiting. I gotta play. Then, with sullen, averted faces, Papa says you'll get that way again if you don't stay in bed. Papa says, Anna May's got a long wait, sister. Get in now and get started. You hear me? Now, if you'll excuse us, Miss Crixie, and I want to thank you for all you've been doing, I'll get back to my work. But the tub would not lift, though she heaved and heaved. And when it finally did, it was because of Miss Crixie's hands at the side of hers. You see, you're not so strong yet, Anna, her neighbor said softly. You lay down again, you find how you feel. Maisie and me got this floor and wash to do. All right, I start the floor for you. And tell Anna May to call Willie. You make him and Maisie do heavy work. Now time to feed baby. She beginning to fuss. Sit down. I fix bottle and you give her. Then you clean. But Beth seemed so heavy in her arms, and the feel of her made her breath sting, sting. And her head was faint, and the hand that held the bottle beginning to tremor. I need some air, I guess. Feed baby will, remembering to say like they told her in the clinic, hold the bottle up so there's always milk in the neck or it gives baby colic bubbles. That's right. But it was not outside she went, but into the children's bedroom. Maisie was there, changing her clothes. Just look at this mess, her mother said. I was holding off cleaning it till you came. Don't you know if you can't keep your own things out of a mess, you'll never keep your life out of one? You clean up Jimmy and put clean rompers on him and then get back here. Go on. Maisie just looked at her with her great eyes. Go on, I'll find him clean things. Well, nothing. She was gone. Well, well, re-echoed in the air. Well, such a mess, said Anna. I never asked her, is that banner as it will is wet in the bed again? Yes, get things back to regular and start taking in laundering. Maisie's dress was crumpled in the corner. Anna picked it up and stuffed it into the dirty clothes bag. Then she smoothed out Will's jacket that had fallen on the floor and hung it on a nail. It was worn thin on the unpatched elbow and the buttons were off again. Mend jacket, she said to herself. Starting over to the chest of drawers with its crust of stuff to be mended, but she stumbled over the children's shoes left in a tangle in the middle of the floor. Crouching down beside them, she whispered, Ben, need souls. Well, maybe a cardboard inside will do. Wills, holes, holes. He always wears them down on the side like that smiling. I'd know Will's shoes out of anywhere in the world, but no soles or new heels or stitching, even if there was money, going to fix these. Too far gone. She stood up abruptly, and the shoes dropped with a clatter. Too far gone. 
Jimmy did not seem to have a single whole sock in the drawer. Ben's hand-me-downs, no wonder, and only one pair of rompers. She began going through the sock pile for a pair that could be most easily mended. Bess's baby socks, Jimmy's, Ben's, Will's, Maisie's, they passed through her hands, and with each one inspected, her head ballooned lighter and lighter. Barefoot season, I forgot, socks can just wait. The rompers, there was a tear in them too, right across the seat. She hadn't noticed. Mend, she said loudly, and stopped there and stood in the middle of the bedroom, holding the rompers. The strength and fury she'd felt an hour ago were all gone now, and she stood there swaying in the middle of the bedroom with its sway-back bed and mattress on the floor with its acrid urine smell, and she thought that she would suffocate of the tears strangling in her throat that would not ascend to her dry eyes. It was not that the clothes were beyond or almost beyond mending and that there were none others and no money to buy more. Not that four children slept here in this closet bedroom, three on a mattress on the floor. Not that in the corners dust curled in feathers, dust that was dirt that breeds disease. You make your children sick. Not that one of her children had stood a few minutes ago, Ah, which hurt more, the earlier averted face or this, looking at her with pain and fear and pity for her in her eyes. It was not any, and it was all of these things that brought her now to swaying in the middle of the floor, twisting and twisting the rompers in soundless anguish. It was that she felt so worn, so helpless, that it loomed gigantic beyond her, impossible ever to achieve, beyond, beyond any effort or doing of hers, that task of making a better life for her children to which her being was bound. Oh, what was the matter with Mama when Papa said she had to stay in bed, acting and looking so funny, and that old Jimmy having to say cheerfully, Mady hurt me, Mommy. She hurt me in the bath. Tattle liar, I didn't hurt him. He's slippery, Mama. Papa said you got to stay in bed. Got to. Mama, can I have Jim Jim's rompers? Coming closer but wanting to run. Oh, Mama, what's the matter? Nothing, Macy. Kneeling down on the floor alongside to reassure her, smiling a tormented smile. I've got to, uh, her throat constricting, do something. What, Mama? I don't know. Twisting and twisting the rompers. I don't know. When Jim came home, she was sitting on the back stoop, directing Will to hoe up the stubbly ground. Hey, what are you doing up, he asked gently, coming up to her. Forget them, take it easy, stay in bed orders. She clenched her teeth and fists and huddled farther back into the twilight shadow. You feeling that much better, honey? Then let's go in. Maybe they'll be waiting for supper some day and there'll be none to give. You ever think of that? We're putting in a garden like you promised and never done. That's what I'm doing up. And I'm starting laundering work again if I can get it. 
on in yourself. Don't get me mad now, Anna, beseechingly. Anna, you've been so sick. You know you shouldn't be up. And shouldn't I? Pulling herself erect. Let the dirt stay. Let the kids run wild and not a decent stitch on them. Let there be no make and do on the money. I shouldn't be up. Don't touch me. And who's to cook and clean and look after the kids if I'm in bed? Who? The servants? The fine servants we keep on the big wages you're making. Stop it, Anna. Stop it. You're making yourself sick. Anna, honey, don't. Don't sweet Anna me. Who's to do it if I'm not up? Answer who? Who's to look out for? Who's to care about him if we don't? Who? Fighting off his attempt to enfold her to quiet his broken. Anna, don't. Please don't. Who? Answer me. Oh, Jim. Giving in, collapsing into his reaching embrace. The children. Over and over, broken. The children. What's going to happen with them? How are we going to look out for them? Oh, Jim, the kids. Seems like we can't do nothing for them in this damn world. Always while Jim worked, down underground, the dripping water diamonds his hair, trickles down his neck, makes a gay sound on his canvas poncho. No Mackinac boots, but it means a buck more a week, don't it? It means stuff for the baby, don't it? Heavy and sore in his breast would lay the torment of the questions Anna had asked, and such a sad, baffled flame of tenderness flicker above. Work through, with a heart that ran far ahead of his feet, he would hurry, hurry home, a nameless fear on him, and his hello be almost a sob of joy as he flung open the door and saw that all seemed as it had been. A gaunt Anna, who could not understand this body of hers that tired so quickly and quivered like a naked nerve, this stranger self, one minute her old competence and strength, the next, addled, nervous, brutal, lost, not managing, having to give under to let things go, any effort wearing her out, everything an effort. Rent week, little in the house to eat besides potatoes and flour, Anna left the baby with Mrs. Crixie and wandered the streets with Maisie and Ben and Jimmy, looking for empty lots where dandelions grew. The wheel of nutrition, one serving green leafy vegetable daily. A hanker for green, she told him. We've been without a far time now. She showed Maisie how to look for plants with fresh yellow flowers or just opening buds, how to select only young, juicy leaves, telling them by their glossy green and tender feel. But the lots were mostly weed, the dandelion heads seedy white, their leaves woody. Though Ben helped, too, their paper bags held scarcely a layer. They wandered on and on. It was a gentle morning. Light and warmth flowed in ripples. I don't remember since when I've been out just walking like this, Anna said, 
her lips were parted, her face uplifted to the blue, seamless air. Maisie felt the strangeness rising in her mother, not like the sickness strange, something else. One lot, Anna gathered a handful of the seedy puffs and without warning in one great breath filled the air with white fluff. You blew a hundred wishes, crowed Ben impressed. You blew a hundred wishes. What did you wish, Mama? You know if I tell it can't come true. She bent to her paper bag, blew it full, with a sudden sharp blow, popped it, laughed. Jimmy, startled, began to cry. I'm sorry, Jimmy, I wasn't thinking. Uh, we got more paper bags than green, she explained. That was to even it up, uh, I guess. You want Mama to carry you a while? No, don't you dare bust that bag, Ben. We're going to need it. You'll see. Three bags full. Ben and even Jimmy ran to get chain makings, carefully running their fingers down the flower stems to the bottom like she showed them to get the longest stems. Is it a block long yet? Is it a block long yet? But abruptly she stopped, threw the unfinished chain at Maisie, who threw it back, wrapped Jimmy round and round with it. They were in a different kind of street now. Lawns, flower beds and borders, children on bikes. Jimmy kept having to be chased after by Maisie and dragged away from other children or things that fascinated him. This would be a good neighborhood to ask for laundron work, Anna said. A vague shame, a weedy sense of not belonging, of something being wrong about them, stirred uneasy through Maisie. Mama, I have to pee, Ben said. Anna walked on carelessly, dreamily, ignoring Ben who gripped tight her skirt with his free hand, his other clutching himself. Ignoring Jimmy, who was now petulantly complaining that he was tired, 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 and Maisie was bad and he didn't want to walk anymore. Two girls walking toward them stared and snickered, turned their heads to look after them. Ben, get your hand away from yourself, Maisie hissed, and savagely to Jimmy, if you'll just shut up, I'll carry you. For some reason it came out in a whisper. Piggyback? If you'll just shut up. Ma, this isn't the way. Why don't I have a tricycle, Ben asked. Will I get one ever? And he slowed to stare longingly after an empty one on a lawn, still clinging to Anna's skirt, so that walking on obliviously her thigh came bared. A woman putting on white gloves came out of a house and smiled at the four of them. Quickly Maisie moved between her and Anna, as if to protect her mother against something. Just you keep your face to yourself, lady, Maisie muttered furiously in her head. Old, crummy, nicey-nice. Ben, she ordered in her mother's voice, don't drag on Mama, walk straight. Ma, this isn't the way. That's a fine horse you got there, the lady said to Jimmy. Pretty big load, though, aren't you? Are you lost, she asked Anna. Giddy up, horsey, yelled Jimmy. Maisie galloped ahead round the corner out of sight. She shifted Jimmy into her arms, glared at him, said in the earlier savage whisper, You're big now, big boys walk. No, Jim Jim tired. Patting her face lovingly, luxuriously abandoning his body against her. Swing and sway some more, matey, swing and sway, good horsey. 
at the end of a cobbly street that had no houses, only high-wire fences, they came to a stretch along the river bluff, yellow and green and white with flowers and grass and dandelion glory. A strange, heavy fragrance drenched the air. There's millions here, exulted Ben, after he and Jimmy had relieved themselves. Maisie was already gathering at the river bluff edge, as far away from them as she could get. This was somebody's good yard, Anna said, bending and inspecting. She put Ben to picking nasturtium leaves. Only the little ones, Ben, no bigger than a penny. Then set to work herself in a swift, practiced rhythm, bending, loosening, gathering. Bees drowsed there. They had to be careful. White trumpet-shaped flowers were scattered in the green. Catalpa, Anna said suddenly, scooping up a handful of the blooms. That best smell. She stood up pointing to the great tree above. Maisie, come over. See, you suck honey syrup out of the little end. Taste, Benji, taste, Maisie. Look inside. There's black and gold and blue markings. Beautiful. And the tiny glass threads standing up as if they was flowers themselves. Yes, Benji, they do feel velvet inside. Rub it on your cheek. She bent to gather again, went on talking. One year when I was high as you, Maisie, we lived a place where was a tree like that. The leaves aren't rightly out yet, but when they are, they get the biggest leaves ever you saw on a tree, heart-shaped, and then that tree gets cigars. We'll come back fall time, you'll see. Her rhythm had slowed. In between gatherings, she sucked the blooms, and Maisie saw that each time before, she drew her breath in deep to smell, deep as if she had to blow off dandelion heads or pop a paper bag. A remote, shining look was on her face, as if she had forgotten them, as if she had become someone else, was not their mother anymore. Ma, come back, Maisie felt like yelling in rancor and fear, jumping up, snapping her fingers into that dreaming face to bring attention, consciousness of them back, make it the old known face again. Snap my fingers. But her fingers were moving deftly, happily, cool, slim, mindless tracing down the notched leaves to the roots, the responsive tug, the tiny spurt of juice spilling its spicy smell. A peace and content began to drowse through her. Bees soundin', she whispered, sweet smellin', ladybugs, butterflies like you're dizzy, unbidden. If you don't look no place, just down. If you don't listen, pretend the trucks and freight noises, equipment, it's the farm. Stupid, she chastised herself grievingly. Stupid, who cares about the farm? Who wants to pick stupid weeds? Snap my fingers in her face loudly. Ma, don't we have enough yet? Ma! Three bags full, said Ben, inspecting. I can cite that, Jimmy said. Ba, ba, black ship, three bags full. Watch how I jump. 
jumping over and over from a wide step of what had been a house, burnt down how long ago. Don't we have enough yet? Maisie repeated. You know greens boil down to just nothing, her mother answered. Yes, I guess that's enough. We'll set a while. My head is balloony, balloony. She staggered, put her arms around Maisie, sang, O Shenandoah, I love thy daughter. I'll bring her safe through stormy water. Smiled so radiantly, Maisie's heart leapt. Arm in arm, they sat down under the catalpa. That look was on her mother's face again, her eyes so shining and remote. She began stroking Maisie's hair in a kind of languor, a swoon. Gently and absently she stroked. Around the springs of gray my wild root weaves. Traveler, repose and dream among my leaves, her mother sang. A fragile, old, remembered comfort streamed from the stroking fingers into Maisie, gathered to some shy bliss that shone despairingly over separating hurt and want and fear and shamings, the harm of years. River wind shimmered and burnished the bright grasses. Her mother's hand stroked, stroked. Young catalpa leaves overhead quivered. Bright reflected light flowed over, illumined their faces. A bee rested on Maisie's leg. Magic flew away, and a butterfly wavered near, settled, folded its wings, flew again. I saw a ship a-sailing, her mother sang, a-sailing on the sea. Maisie felt the strange happiness in her mother's body, happiness that had naught to do with them, with her, happiness and farness and selfness. I saw a ship a-sailing, and on that ship was me. The fingers stroked, spun a web, cocooned Maisie into happiness and intactness and selfness soft wove the bliss round hurt and fear and want and shame the old worn fragile bliss a new frail selfness bliss healing transforming up from the grasses from the earth from the broad tree trunk at their back latent life streamed and seeded the air and self shone boundless. Absently her mother stroked, stroked unfolding, wingedness, boundlessness. I'm hungry, Ben said. Watch me jump, Jimmy called imperiously. Mama, Maisie, watch. You're not watching. The wind shifted, blue packing house. A tremble of complicity ran through Maisie's body. With both hands she tethered her mother's hand to keep it stroking, stroking. Too late. Something whirred, severed, sank. Between a breath, between a heartbeat, the weight settled, the bounds reclaimed. I'm watching, 
Anna called. The mother look was back on her face, the mother alertness attunement in her bounded body. I didn't think to bring a bite for us, Ben. Wherever is my head these light days? A balloony. Catalpa. She laughed, holy moroli, using an expression they'd never heard her use before. There's nary a shadow. Noontime. And I promised Miss Crixie we'd be back. Never again but once did Maisie see that look, the other look, on her mother's face. You just heard the voice of the late Tilly Olson reading from her novel, Yonandio, from the 30s. She recently passed away on January 1st, and on January 14th, she would have celebrated her 95th birthday. Years after writing Yonandio, Tilly Olson said she felt as she had failed for having left Yonandio unfinished. She planned to add a number of other chapters to the book. Although Tilly's politics would change over the course of her life, her politics were the center of her life in the 1930s. Her preoccupation with politics and with the idea of loss that pervades Yonandio combined to create a strong, complicated text that is as much about the Holbrooks as it is about the politics and policies of the 1930s. Yonandio has generated a great deal of critical interest, especially among feminist critics. Most critics deal with Olson's treatment of impoverished women, a unique subject in the 1930s, when most communist writers were writing macho male-centered polemics. It is her humane and complex treatment of the subject that has garnered Yonandio a place in the canon. This has been Cover to Cover Open Book. I'm Amelia Gonzalez, thanking you for listening. This week on KPFA's Sunday Salon, in our first hour, we go live to Memphis and the Media Reform Conference. What needs to be reformed about the media? Just about everything. We'll talk about one of the most egregious cases of media misbehavior, the handling of reporter Gary Webb and his exposure of the CIA, the Contras, and cocaine, and bring it down to today as what the citizens' movement is trying to do is change the media entirely. And in our second hour, it's Martin Luther King Jr. holiday weekend, of course. We'll take a look at the latest book that's come out, 